You're listening to Radio Activism, a production of the Radio Cafe. I'm your host, Mary Charlotte. I first encountered Dina Metzger in the 1990s when I first moved to Santa Fe, New Mexico. She was giving a talk about how the use of underwater sonar by the Navy was causing whales to go deaf. The pain she felt for the whales was palpable and eloquent and contagious, and it really led me to follow the issue of whales and sonar ever since then. But it wasn't only the political issue that I took away from her talk. Her whole way of being led me to think about how important it is for activists and for just citizens who care about things to be able to feel, to feel the pain of others, not to block it out, make excuses, get distracted, but to sit with it, no matter how painful it is, remembering that it's more painful for the other person or whale or whoever than it is for you. Feel the pain and then act and then keep acting. That's what I got from Dina Metzger. The fight to stop the use of Navy sonar went on for decades, and in 2016, a federal court finally ruled against the Navy, and the oceans got quieter. Whether they will stay that way remains to be seen. In any case, Dina Metzger, as you will hear, has been an activist since she was a child. And now, at the age of 80, she's still going strong as an author and speaker and as a person who brings people together in all kinds of ways. I had the chance to speak to her when she was in Santa Fe recently. Let's go now to that conversation. I'm delighted to welcome Dina Metzger. She's an activist, writer, teacher, and healer. She's author of many books of fiction, nonfiction, poetry, and drama. Welcome. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. So you have been doing this work as a writer and teacher much of your life. Has activism always been part of that for you? Oh, yes, absolutely. Because when, maybe when I was born, I I thought I had a mission, but I certainly did think so by the time I was five or seven. Really? Yeah. What was that like? Well, it seemed natural to me, and, you know, I would actually ask you, didn't you think so too? No. (laughs) (laughs) I looked around the world. Of course, you have to realize I was born in 1936. So I was five in 41. And so we had blackouts and air raid tests, and we were sending food to England to our family there. And so I knew about the war. And then when I was older, so this would be 1945, I was nine, there was a um, a little pamphlet that came through school. It was the Weekly Reader, and the front page had pictures of the bomb, and that we were in terrible trouble. And somehow at nine, I felt it would be my job as well as others, but my job to do something about it. It was not, the world I was born into uh, was not okay. My family was okay, but the, but the world around us was not. Do you remember at age nine what you thought about the bomb, like, and what you thought you wanted to make better? I didn't want it to be there. I didn't want the bomb. I didn't want bombs. Bombs were falling on England and my family. I had a a great aunt and her family that lived in London. 
Many, 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 many years later, I learned that my father's family and probably my mother's that had remained there, but my father's family had been killed in, in, by the Nazis in Poland. And so you know things as a child. And I think that many children come in profoundly wise. And there are all kinds of myths about that. Doris Lessing writes about this in Canopus, that there's a group of people that came into the world they had agreed before they came to meet and heal the planet. And the story is about those who, those who remember and those who forget and those who remember and are not interested because they're dazzled by materialism and, and our culture. Joanna Macy does a very interesting exercise where she asks people to consider what was going on historically when they were born. So they consider, and, and to consider the conditions in the local place where they were born and also nationally and internationally. And then think about their parents and think about the circumstances that they came into. And then she asks you, do you volunteer again to take on what you agreed to take on when you entered? And there's a moment where everyone deeply considers what they volunteered for. I want to say what we volunteered for. And when you say yes, now, not before you were born, but now at age 20 or 50 or 70, that's a different commitment. So what do you think you volunteered for? If I would look at it now, I would say I volunteered to live in such a way that the trajectory that we're on, which is destroying the planet, will shift and that we will live as human beings everywhere on the planet in ways that sustain and protect and respect the natural world. I, I thought about my father a lot, who would talk about, in a sense, dying in a dying language, because he spoke Yiddish, and then the Holocaust came. Everything that came before, the pogroms, etc., he had escaped from the Tsarist army and gone to London, where his sister was living. But now, after World War II, for him, everything was was dying and the language was dying and and I always felt an enormous amount of sorrow for him for what he was carrying and what he was mourning but it may not be anything like the sorrow of watching what's happening on the planet and so I've had a, a history of all kinds of activism you know, anti-war and being a feminist thinker but Nothing like the urgency of what's happening on the planet now. Specifically climate change. Climate change. Climate change and extinction. And extinction is not only related to climate change. 
extinction is related to the way we live as human beings. The disappearance and the taking over of habitat, the mass murder of animals for sport, the lack of recognition that these are other beings that inhabit the planet with us and can inhabit it in interdependent ways, all that going. And the, the change of the human species from a feeling species to a technologically oriented species, all of that to me is uh, a horrific situation that we're in. And so sometimes I jokingly say to the spirits, listen, you know, I'm 80 years old and I'm pretty feisty now and I'm, I'm going to get worse. And if you don't help us change it, you're going to have to deal with this really cranky woman because I'm not leaving till I see that it's shifting. What are you seeing now in terms of effective action? We know that people are talking. We know that there's political log jams and changes in political cycles every two years, four years, six years on a national level and not a lot of progress. Well, because there are so many forms that need to be taken, if you think about the system of the earth, which is a profoundly diverse system, and what we know is that as long as that diversity exists, the planet can survive. But when it becomes a monoculture, then it will die. Well, it's the same in terms of activism. We need an entire range of actions. For myself, I'm sort of cynical about the forms that are given to people. They're very limited. Write a letter, make a phone call, sign a petition. It really, it's not working. At this particular moment, the people in power don't care, and they lie. So our political system is broken. There are people whose calling is to fix that system, and there are people whose calling is to be on the streets, and there are people working different ways. Tell us more about the way that you're working. I'm trying to help people change their minds. I'm, tr I'm asking people to examine the cultural assumptions that we're making and to step out of Western culture, to step out of a culture that believes in domination, that believes in the supremacy of human beings, to step out of a narcissistic and greedy and acquisitive culture, to look at indigenous cultures and see the wisdom that they hold and to see if we can begin to return to a wiser and kinder way of being, a community-based rather than individually based a way of living, and also to listen deeply to what might be said to us that we don't know. It's not about, let's just go back. Let's go back and see what the wisdom from the old, old times are. But let us also listen from the heart very, very deeply to new ways. I'm asking people to go into the unknown and to take chances and to step out of 
institutional forms, not to let the conventional ways of doing things be the limit, because those conventional ways are stopping us from going where we must go. It's an interesting question that you raise, because stepping out of institutional forms, I mean, like, I assume you're talking about things like universities, political systems, government institutions, and so on. Well, maybe some of us can go back to the land, but most of us can't because we don't have land or not enough to go back to if there's even if back is even the right metaphor. So what is the new relationship? First of all, it's complex. Some people go back to the land. Some people leave corporate farming for small farms. So we have to look at a range uh, of things. I was uh, teaching in a community college. Um, happened that I was involved in a court case and won it and was reinstated where I was teaching. But I left that and I started teaching privately. Not everyone can do that, but some people may be very, very well educated without going to a university. I think about things like the elders who still remember their cultural forms being open to teaching their grandchildren again, teaching the children on the block, having a house where the elders get the elders are present and the kids can go there, as opposed to having to go to a particular kind of school, often which does not speak to the true needs of the children. Depends an awful lot on the particular elders. Absolutely. And all of that possibility. It also depends a lot on the particular teachers or the particular principal. Always depends on that. Your latest book is a novel. It's called A Reign of Nightbirds, and it explores, among other things, the worlds of Western and indigenous medicine. And you're looking at both people who are sick and ecosystems that are sick. Tell us about how this book came to be. Oh. <laughs> came out of a lifetime of thinking about Western mind and indigenous mind and thinking about Western medicine. My first husband is a physician, so I learned a lot about medicine uh, from living with him. But then also met indigenous healers and, and also had uh, breast cancer in 1977 and learned a great deal about healing from that, and learned a great deal about the dangers of medicine from that, and was fortunate to be able to step away from them to get the best of Western medicine and not the worst of it. So I had all of that in my mind, but the book itself was given in ways that still astonish me. I had finished a novel, La Negra Blanca, and I was looking for the next book, and I was walking in the desert, and I was doing what turns out to be my spiritual practice, which is I was picking up garbage. And there was so much of it, and I couldn't carry it anymore. And I heard myself say out loud, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry for all this garbage on this land. And then I heard a voice, and it said, you know her name is Sandra Birdswell. 
and she's a meteorologist. No, I don't know. I've never heard that name. It's not a name that had any resonance for me. Couldn't imagine a character with that name. Actually looked up to see if Birdswell was the name. I looked in phone books and stuff to see if I could find that name. I, I didn't. And a meteorologist, within a few years of writing the book, I realized she was not a meteorologist. She was a climatologist because things had gotten so, so, so bad. And then things came to me. I looked, I didn't look for it because I didn't know about it. I found uh, somehow the 2007 International Panel on Climate Change report and read that and began reading, of course. I had to find out what, what she would know, what she would look at. I had to find out what her field was. And as I was looking what the field was I was reading in all those areas. I learned a great deal about things I didn't want to know about, like weather manipulation, weather wars, things we're in that are horrific, that have to do with manipulating natural systems. And I had also been thinking about what would Western medicine be if it's essential principle dominated, which is first, do no harm. So in the novel, John Birdswell, Sandra's father, is a, like a family doc, like a country doc, just the best of doctor practitioners. And he really, really wants to heal. And it turns out, and I have to say it turns out because I'm as surprised by all of this as the reader. It was all given. He didn't want to go to Vietnam. He didn't want to fight. He, his adopted parents were Quakers. And so he spent two years on the Four Corners Reservation, Navajo Reservation, on the Indian Health Service. And there he meets a medicine man. And he begins to learn the difference between Western medicine and indigenous medicine. So, for example, there, there's a scene where he is so pleased when he goes into the hospital for the first time and he sees all these, these rooms lined up with their equipment and it's all very neat and technological and sterile. And the medicine man explains to him how alien this is. And he shows him the, they go outside the hospital and they looked at the vast area and the Navajo don't live in little tiny communities. They live very spread out. They depend for their well-being and their mental health on, on being outside on the land with the elements. And so when one is ill, one doesn't want to be confined in an alien space. When you're ill, you want to be in in the most healing, beautiful environment. So one of the things that came to me many, many years ago, early on, when I had breast cancer, I began to think about what healing is, is that healing, the ways of healing are beautiful. Western medicine is not beautiful. Do you think it saved you? Surgery saved me. I did nothing else. 
I came in at a time when I was very fortunate. You think about being assisted by spirit where I made a decision between a mastectomy and a lumpectomy. And I was given that choice. It was only the second year that they were doing lumpectomies. And I remember saying to the doctor, I'm reading about um, chemo and I'm reading about radiation. Who decides? And remarkably, not because he was kind, but because he really didn't want to work with me. (laughs) He said, you decide. Well, that was easy. I was going to cut it out. I would let the surgeon cut the cancer out of my body, and I would have to cut the cancer out of my body, mind, soul. And I knew that would be my work. And how did you do that? Well, you do it all kinds of ways, but you go inside and you say, what is making me ill? And how does my illness resemble illnesses in the world? So for me, cancer became easily seen as an imperialistic force. And I wanted to know how I was cooperating with imperialism, how I was dominating situations, how I was not living ecologically, how I was extracting the resources from my from my own self, was not recycling them. Uh, you know, all the things we think about, I was living within an internal imperialistic system. And I also knew that for cancer not to be in the world in the way it is, imperialism itself has to go because it is also one of the causes of cancer. Well, that's, I mean, something that I wanted to ask you about was the analogies between individual illness and the illnesses in ecosystems. If you look at the illnesses that are plaguing us now, you can see a reflection in the world. So in that sense, cancer was simple. An alien cell enters a system, uses up all the resources, gives nothing back, pollutes profoundly, and then at some point, everything dies. So I was working with that, working with people with that for, for a long time. But I was also beginning to see that the cancer cell was the first victim of environmental mutation. So I have begun to think about the cancer cell as, as a victim. It doesn't want to be this cell that doesn't function. It doesn't want to be outside of the society, but it can't function in it anymore. And so I ask the question, when we're doing research to find healing, instead of thinking of killing everything in the system, why don't we think about how we might restore that cancer cell and return it to its true nature? So that is also a question I ask of the society. How do we restore each of us to our true nature so that we can live cooperatively? How do you reconcile the what you call is sort of unesthetic nature of Western medicine with the fact that it worked for you. And I mean, I wouldn't be here without Western medicine. I'd 
have died a long time ago. And I think that's true for many of us. So in many ways, it does work. It works somewhat. We also have many, many side effects that, that kill us. And we haven't seen the whole picture. So I was fortunate in that I didn't do radiation and I didn't do chemo. And I'm sort of radiation phobic. So I just had a conversation with, with the doctor and he said, well, we can do this test or this test. I said, I don't do radiation. But when we use these medicines that supposedly heal us, we may also be causing illness and death for the next generation. So we have to consider an overview. So what I'm asking of Western medicine, which is so brilliant, is that Western medicine focus on what does no harm. There is no reason for every medicine to have such horrific side effects and to be oriented toward, from a harmful point of view. How can we kill? No. How can we restore? How can we bring health to? If we ask these questions, we are smart enough to develop medicines that respond to them. My little dog got cancer not too long ago, and I went to a veterinary oncologist, and she told me that the paradigm for treating animals was different from the human paradigm for treating cancer. With humans, they try to eradicate every last cancer cell. With dogs, they manage it. There might be tumors there, but you just keep it in check enough that the dog could live out its full life and die of old age. Very different paradigm. Very different. And the question that's not asked is, why did your dog have cancer? Why do our animals now have cancer? Why do the fish in the ocean have lesions? Why do the animals in the wild have lesions? So to honor one way and not see the harm that it does is quite crazy. And so I'm asking us to start again and rethink everything. I don't want to save my own life and have my grandchildren suffer from a polluted earth that's caused in part by the medicine I take. You've led conversations between traditional indigenous medicine people and doctors. What's that like? What's come out of it? Paint that picture for us. The physicians that I work with or that my community that gathers with me around revisioning medicine, the physicians that come, they want to be healers. They, they want to heal. That's why they went into medicine. They are undone by the medical system. And so we sit together and listen to each other. And the medical people listen deeply to the medicine healers. And there begins to be an exchange. I know a, uh, a psychologist working in an integrated medical system that she herself started who drums with her patients. It's a deep practice. She has learned it over many, many years. Patients want doctors to pray for them. They really want that. It's hard for doctors to get permission to do that or to be spiritually connected enough to 
bring that aspect into medical treatment. Perhaps the most important thing that happens is that the physicians are reoriented again to an earth-based medicine, which means using the healing properties of earth and also not doing harm to the earth, recognizing that connection. There was one moment in in one of our meetings when a doctor was reminded of a sign that was above the toilet in the hospital, in the room where people went after chemo. And it said, please flush twice because the chemo can pit the porcelain. And suddenly the thought entered him, and what does it do to the earth? Yeah, what's downstream from the hospital? What is downstream from the hospital? And all the medical waste. So many ways that on the one hand, Western medicine heals, and on the other hand, it contributes to illness. So I'm asking everyone to have the larger picture. Look at what's downstream, and look at what's, as the Native people will say, seven years ahead of us. You, as you said before, come from New York, Europe, World War II, the atomic bomb, the Holocaust. This is the background. And as you said, these things seem small compared to the eradication of species on the Earth, the sixth great mass extinction, which we seem to be living right now. And one gets the sense, you know, listening to you, reading your books, that there is a really important place as an activist that you have made for grieving. Tell us about that. Sorrow is my teacher. I wouldn't know what to do without sorrow. When I sit with people in a circle, I will ask them, what is your grief? And what is the nature of your suffering? And then I say, okay, that's your wisdom. Imagine that you were given this, because all of us are given something. You were given this particular form of knowing. Now, how are you going to heal it? So, when I had cancer, I was not expecting to be a healer. I was not expecting to be interested in medicine in any way. Having cancer changed my life entirely. And it was as if it was given to me as the basis of how I would live. But what I also knew at that moment was how many women had cancer. And I had asked myself a question before I discovered I had cancer. I was writing a novel and the question was, why do so many women have cancer? Why now and why so young? And I didn't know at that time that I was one of the young ones. I was 40, and I was looking at students who were in their 20s who had cancer. So that was a great sorrow. I was very involved with feminism at the time, and to see how women were suffering was great sorrow. And it became the ground of how I moved in the world. There are so many of us who I think are overwhelmed by things to be sorrowful about. There's a word for it. What is it? Um, Compassion fatigue, overwhelm. 
because there are so many things, I mean, as you say, our electoral, our political system in many ways is broken. There are some ways in which, perhaps on local and state levels also, that it still works, and even on the federal level. But in many ways, it's broken. Our industrial system is, let's not even make the list. We know, you know, I know, everybody listening knows. If you were to open your heart to all of that, you'd be grieving full time. I am grieving full time. Western culture compartmentalizes. That's crazy. Of course I'm grieving full time. I'm also incredibly engaged in this conversation with you. And I'm joyous about the beauty of the sky that I saw when I came into Santa Fe. And these are interpenetrating, coexistent ways of being. When we compartmentalize, we also limit the human being. So, yeah, whale and dance salsa, which is actually what you do. <laughs> that is one of my little hobbies, yes. <laughs> so, you started out, as you said, you feel you felt like you came into this world as an aware person, maybe a wise child, a kind of an activist, what were the first things that you actually did? You put your foot down and at the age of four or 10 or whatever and said no. At 11, I organized, I'm smiling because I'm just remembering this. At 11, I organized the kids in my class to raise, I think we raised $300 to adopt a war orphan in France. And we went to Save the Children Foundation. I'm remembering this now. They gave us a piggy bank, a, a little pink ceramic piggy bank that we could put our money in. And we did events. We did lemonade stands and you know, cookie sales and all of that stuff. We didn't go to and institutions to find out how to do it. We did it ourselves and we brought the money and then we were given the name of a little girl, her name was Edka in France. And we wrote to her and sent her packages and clothes and candy and you know, toys and all of that. Pretty regularly, I think once every month or once every two months we sent a package. And then it happened that this incredible miracle. Her father walked all over Europe and he found her. And she was the only one left of the family. And they came to the United States. And somehow, after some while, they found us. And she was in Brooklyn and I was in Brooklyn. And we got together. He came and brought her. And I, I was 11, so I, I cleaned out my room so that every other drawer was empty, and I moved the, my clothes over, and I assumed she was coming to be my sister. I was an only child. And just accepted her, like, you know, she'd been brought to me. She, of course, she was my sister. It turned out that he was Orthodox. I mean, not only wasn't he going to give his child over, but he was Orthodox, and I was wearing a sleeveless T-shirt because it was summer, and I never saw her again. 
So there it is, the joy and the sorrow, the beauty, the gain and the loss. It's how it is. <sighs> what is giving you hope now? You. <laughs> what else? People who are listening. That the spirits are speaking to many of us. That there are communications coming from other realms, mysterious and comprehensible, but incontrovertibly true. And I've had experience with animals, elephants in particular, of direct, astonishing communications in which we have been involved in stories. You know, a story is narrated that we are involved in, if people go onto my blog or on my website and go to my blog on my website, which is justinametzger.net, there are stories of these encounters with the elephants and photographs. So there is wisdom coming. And so I think if the spirits are guiding us, they must be doing it because there's hope if I don't do anything, there's no hope. If I do change my mind, allow my mind to be changed, and live in different ways, and if healing is, as I believe it is, contagious, then many of us are changing our lives. So it really almost doesn't matter what we do, going back to your question about the governmental system, if we begin to live differently, if we take our lives into our own hands and live according to our deepest values and the guidance that's coming to us, and we start making relationships with the earth and with other beings, it will shift in ways we can't imagine. Dina Metzger is an activist, writer, teacher, and healer you can find more at dinametzger.net. Thank you so much for being with us. Great pleasure. You've been listening to Radio Activism, a production of the Radio Cafe. I'm your host, Mary Charlotte. If you want to find out more about Dina Metzger, you can go to her website, dinametzger.net. That's D-E-E-N-A-M-E-T-Z-G-E-R.net. If you have comments, questions, or ideas, please write to me at mc at radiocafe.org. You can find us on the web at radioactivism.net. You can also find us at facebook.com slash radiocafe, and we're on Twitter at radiocafemc. Please follow us there. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.